Hey, I'm Morgan from Seattle. I'm Matt from Essex, Ontario. Hey, I'm Dan from Dayton, Mass. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you watched Arrested Development, you know that Buster Bluth was the poster child for the beaten-down mama's boy. He was played by Tony Hale. You know, with Buster, he was so, such a man-child and so emasculated and constantly, even physically, was kind of going back like, oh, 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 like con- like his whole body would go back anytime someone would talk to him. So when you're playing that all day, you know, I'd come home and my wife would be like, God, you're just a little extra hypersensitive. <laughs> like you need to... <laughs> So I'd have to kind of, it was kind of hard to step out of it, you know, like Be bringing like, oh, wait your hands up in front of your chest. That was exactly. something Buster did a I'm lot not, of. I'm not going to hit you. I'm not going to hit you. But I mean, I, you know, you kind of step away and go, I'm a father. I'm a man. I'm a, hu- I'm a husband. I'm a valuable member of my society. You know, go forth. It's bullseye. This week, the tremendous Tony Hale talks about his early commercial work, his faith, and who to call when you need to learn a few new swear words fast. The director, Nick Stoller, extols the virtues of the romantic comedy. His new movie is The Five-Year Engagement, and Casper Hauser returned with their very, very fake news. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Uh, Every week on this show, we ask a couple of our favorite culture critics to make some recommendations of things that are worth your time. And this week, we are joined by Brian Heater and Alex Zalbin, our resident comics critics, to recommend some comics and graphic novels that you should check out. Alex, Brian, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us back on. Yeah, thanks thanks for having us back on after what happened last time. Yeah, you guys got really into that uh, graphic novel about Jeffrey Dahmer and talking about cannibalism, as I recall. <laughs> Alex, let's talk about a comic book that you like that has nothing to do with cannibalism. Uh, it's called King City by Brandon Graham. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> this is a sh- this is a book about a cat master, which mm-hmm. is I understand it from these notes in front of me is a sort of ninja whose main weapon is a cat. That's right. Uh, It is one of the most surreal comics I've ever read in my entire life. Uh, On the surface, it's about a guy who, you know, pretty normal stuff, uses a cat, can inject it with stuff so it can turn into a parachute or a defibrillator (laughs) or things like that. Uh, That's sort of the pitch line of it. But the real thing that's going on in the book is you have ninjas and you have aliens and you have giant Cthulhu-esque monsters attacking this place of King City, but it's really about the relationships between the characters and them avoiding these conflicts the entire time. So it's more about Brandon Graham coming up with this fully realized, wonderful, exciting, only in comic book city, and then populating with it with people that uh, sometimes uh, thread throughout the entire book, but sometimes just appear in one panel, and even those one-panel characters, you're dying to know more about. I like the idea of creating this incredibly complex action system, and, and then you, and then creating characters that are trying to avoid getting involved with it. Yeah, it's like if Robert Altman was insane. <laughs> Brian, uh, tell me a little bit about Goliath. Well, uh, 
it, once you get past the the initial disappointment that that nobody uh, is eaten over the course of, of the book, uh, what you have here, I, I guess I guess if I'm going to draw a common thread between this and the and the cannibalism book, it would be uh, the fact that this is also a um, uh, a, a fairly sympathetic portrait of a character that's uh, uh, sort of been vilified. Um, it's a story of, of Goliath from the the Old Testament uh, uh, David and Goliath story. So so the big uh, the big giant that gets felled with uh, with a, a slingshot and a rock. Um, it's this uh, it's this kind of interesting take on the story where he's basically this uh, this bureaucrat who um, you know kind of gets duped into becoming uh, a soldier for the army based on his his really large stature. And uh, doesn't really want to get involved in it. I mean, it's it's a surprisingly it's it's a really uh, it's a subtle story. It's a quiet story. It's it's funny and it's and it's dialogue based and it's uh, it's a you know just a, an extremely different take on uh, that that very old and very familiar story. Brian, Alex, thank you so much for uh, your recommendations. Thanks again for having us on. Thanks, Jesse. Brian Heater is a freelance comics journalist and uh, the man behind the blog, The Daily Crosshatch, online at thedailycrosshatch.com. He recommends Goliath by Tom Gold. Alex Zalbin is a writer for MTV Geek and the host of the live New York talk show Comic Book Club, which you can find online at comicbookclublive.com. He recommends King City, the new collection of the comic series King City by Brandon Graham. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Tony Hale, uh, became one of America's most beloved comic actors for his role as Buster Bluth on on the uh, television sitcom Arrested Development. Now he plays the body man to Julia Louis-Dreyfus's vice president on the new HBO series Veep. Um, In both roles, he combines a wide-eyed baby-like innocence (laughs) with a uh, sort of sweet uh, overcommitment to almost everything that he does um, to to absolutely brilliant comic effect and uh, Tony it's just it's really great to have you on thank Thank you you for for, having me thank you for joining me on the show Um, I want to play a clip from Veep uh, the HBO series that um, you are a co-star of this show is set in the world of the vice presidency um, the star of the show is Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who plays the vice president, Selena Meyer. Mm-hmm. And um, you are her what's called body man. I'm her body man. Um, what is a, let's ex- explain what a body man yeah, is. I'm kind of body man slash personal aide where I carry around this large bag um, and whatever she needs, I give her, like, it could be an extra pair of shoes, hand sanitizer. Another character calls it your bitch <laughs> it's, bag. I'm, it's my bitch bag. I'm her bitch. <laughs> um, and it's pretty much whatever she needs, I have it. And if I don't have it, then I'm just, it's just horrible. Cause I mean, I need to always be prepared. I think there's like 60 pockets in the bag and I know where each <laughs> thing is. I know where the Kleenex is. I know where some lady unmentionables are if she needs them. There's a really brutal scene where she comes down on you yeah. like a like a hammer. Oh yeah, because you only have one box uh, of vice, vice presidential M&Ms. M&Ms. Yeah, because she needs. She's trying to kind of butter up to this guy, 
and she says, oh, and let's give you two boxes, and I only have one box. And you, I mean, that is just <laughs> career suicide for me to only have one box of M&Ms for her. So in this scene from the show, uh, the vice president is supposed to be schmoozing with some senators. Uh, you are by her side, and um, you, are, you are letting her know about what each of the senators' sort of personal characteristics are as she, uh, as she shakes hands with them. Is this the right room? Are we early or... Senator or... Philip Dorsey, 2 o'clock. I'm not a sniper. Philip! Ah, uh, Madam Vice President, welcome. Thank you. Oh, you remember my chief of staff, Amy. Oh, Amy, it's nice to see His you. His daughter, Emily, just graduated from Harvard. As well. Tell me, how is Emily? Oh, she's good. Oh, good. Can I get you something to drink? I would love a coffee. You got it. Okay, thank yeah. you. What's going on, Amy? There aren't enough people to fill a canoe in here. Okay. Hello. What's wrong? That was so your bad okay. What's wrong? You? Senator Mike Dudley, who's interested in maps. Mike, you found us. Oh, Madam Vice President, is that a map joke? <laughs> yes, it is. It oh, is. Uh, Madam Vice President. I don't know who this man is. Hello. Okay, here comes Dorsey with your coffee. Gary, I have large moving shapes covered. Okay. Okay? Okay. I love that part of Gary, who's uh, that's my character's name in the show, is he does whisper these all these things into to Julia Salina's ear. So when she's talking to somebody, I'll whisper something to her like he's a triathlete or, you know, he has a brother in Rage Against the Machine or something that she can, that she can have a conversation piece with this person. And I love that Gary is just this walking Wikipedia where he can just randomly just recite these factoids. He's not great with policy. Anything having to do with politic policy, he gets a little – confused and, and crazy but when it comes to random facts about people he, he knows that there's a moment in the third episode where he he leans over and whispers in the vice president's ear a factoid about her own daughter yeah exactly <laughs> and she sort of chides him <laughs> and then uses it immediately yeah, totally of course yeah she doesn't have the best relationship with her daughter i know more about her daughter than she does um, you, I, Ar- Armando Inucci, who uh, created the show and has been a guest on our show, I think is just a brilliant genius. Mm, um, he really is. He he has this vision of the world of politics. I mean, this vision of 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 what to satirize in the world of politics that I mm-hmm. think is very distinctive. Um, he is a very, he is a, I would say a profoundly politically informed man. Yeah, he has done, um, you know. He is. He's appeared on uh, very serious news programs as a very serious news commentator <laughs> yeah, in the yeah, UK, yeah. Um, and has done straight-ahead news satire in in the UK that you know involves very thoughtful critiques of things in the news. This show, like uh, like the, its sort of spiritual predecessor, the uh, the uh, British show, The Thick of It, yeah. is a very different kind of satire. And then it, it doesn't have any issues in it basically at all. It doesn't have any issues? Yeah, well, I mean, it has a couple of issues, but they're sort of symbolic of the idea of issues. Oh, yeah, yeah. It really, and it really becomes about kind of a, a crazy work environment that this vice president has with her staff. Um, the fact remains, especially being an election year, all we're hearing is, you know, perfectly planned speeches, perfect sound bites, a lot of posturing. And the fact is, nobody can remain that perfect. Nobody can. So you know these people are going behind the scenes and losing their You know, you know they're just having freakouts, getting insecure, getting jealous, you know, wondering, am I getting enough attention? We need to spend this. 
And I love that that's where he's like, we're going to focus on that with this show because that's where the comedy is. And that's also where the reality is. It really is about this situation. It is absolutely about this situation, but it's totally not about policy. It's, it's about the fact that these are people in an absolutely insane, inhuman context. Yeah. Like human beings in an inhuman place. Yeah, and clinging to their jobs. You know, and anything that is posing a threat, they will find a way to get rid of it. You know, and it's just everybody is just terrified that they're going to lose their job or their position, you know. And that's the other thing. I mean, the the two great things that are feeders for comedy are stakes. Yep. You know, you want everything yep. to have stakes. And there's no shortage of stakes here. No shortage. And the other thing is status. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And oh, there's this yeah. essentially is a status play because it is all that anyone cares about. Yeah. And, I, and Julia, who plays the Veep, is, has such a fantastic balance of a woman who really, when you're watching her, she carries the authority of the vice president. You really believe that she's the vice president. But then the door is closed and she just has these just lamb, I mean, just goes crazy sometimes on us because she gets freaked out and we're not doing our job. And so she really, I love that she's just a perfect balance and she is pitch perfect, in my opinion, with the, with the um, job. That 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 really comes up a lot for um for your character too yeah. because your character is so I mean all of the other characters on the show have these have these sort of uh policy connections yeah 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 and your character is so personally yeah connected. yeah yeah I'm so pretty much my identity is completely wrapped in Selena Julia's character. I've my Gary who I play all he's got is cats at home and he the, the thought <laughs> is if he were to because the my character should have left my job in my 20s I should nobody has my job past their 20s whereas me it's my identity so the thought of leaving it is just seems like suicide you know so I am so enmeshed and have this incredibly codependent relationship with Selena that she has become my identity. So I will do whatever it takes to serve her. I want to play a clip from uh, Veep. Uh, This is uh, Gary, played by my guest, Tony Hale. And he's talking with his colleague, Dan. And Dan is a a, a bit of a usurper in the office. He is a, a, a spin meister. And they are walking down the hall, and Dan is essentially questioning the importance of uh gary's assistance and he's played by the fantastic reed scott yeah who's absolutely tremendous in the role and and he is he is getting up in uh my guest tony hale's face (laughs) about his significance uh to the vice president yep i appreciate the reference to my potential suicide earlier i'm not a joke you're the guy with the big bag of lip balm gary you're kissinger (laughs) every single thing you say to me is emasculating do you realize that yes i do a serious job I'm next to the Veep more than any other human being. You are distantly orbiting her. I'm her moon. So would you take a bullet for the Veep, Gary? Oh, my God. No, 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 because, you know, you're going to be right in the line of fire. It's not my job. I would help her if she was down. Right, with the lip bomb, if she got shot in the lips, that could crack them pretty bad. Great. We missed the elevator. Both arrested and this, I there's you know there's I have codependent relationships with two women in my life, like my mother on arrested and and Selena, 
in this show. And that's just fun. It's just fun to play out. <laughs> that's fun. Has it helped you work through any real life issues? I know. I know. My wife and I talk about that. Because I remember when I was doing Arrested that I, you know, when you're playing kind of, you know, with Buster, he was so, such a man child and so emasculated and constantly, even physically, was kind of going back, like, oh, 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 like, con- like his whole body would go back anytime someone would talk to him. So when you're playing that all day, you know, I'd come home and my wife would be like, God, you're just a little extra hypersensitive. <laughs> like, you need to. <laughs> So I'd have to kind of, it was kind of hard to step out of it, you know, like bringing like, oh, wait your hands up in front of your chest. That was exactly. something Buster did a I'm lot gonna, of. I'm not going to hit you. I'm not going to hit you. But I mean, I, you know, you kind of step away and go, I'm a father. I'm a man. I'm a, hu- I'm a husband. I'm a valuable member of my society. No, go forth. After a break, Tony Hale will talk about his performance as the beaten down mama's boy, Buster Bluth on Arrested Development. All that Buster wanted in life was safety. That's, that was his only desire in life. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey, podcast listeners, review our show in iTunes. It makes a big difference and it only takes a second. I'm waiting for you to do it. You're opening iTunes now. You're typing in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You're clicking on review. Now you're clicking on that fifth star. Now you're typing in why the show is so great. Now I'm thanking you. Great work. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tony Hale. He's a comic actor who gigged for years before landing a role on the Fox sitcom Arrested Development as Buster Bluth. He now plays Gary Walsh, the vice president's body man on the new HBO show Veep. I want to ask you about your uh, early days as an actor, because you, like uh, like a lot of actors, spent a long time working as an actor before you came to national prominence. And like a lot of New York actors, especially. National prominence sounds so fancy. (laughs) Wow. National prominence. (laughs) Um, You went to a Baptist college in the South. I did. I did. I went to Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. And you're originally from Florida. Did you go to Samford University because you because you intended to become a professional actor or no? I I keep saying this. I'm pretty sure you know how like when you get older and your memory just goes to crap. But I'm pretty sure this is true. My SAT scores were so bad that Samford is the only school that accepted me. <laughs> and uh, so, and it was, and I went and visited. I really liked the campus and. So I got there, but I wasn't really – didn't feel strong enough to pursue theater, so I studied journalism. And then um, after school is when I began to kind of dive in and pursue acting. What was it that, that, was, that was the difference for you between thinking I should have a regular job and mm-hmm. I, I should move from uh, the South to New York City and yeah. actually try and become an actor? Yeah, it was one of those things where – I just, you know, it was young. I was in my early 20s. And I was like, you know, what the hell? I'm just going to, I'm going to move to New York. Did you do it right out of college? No. I went to, after college, I uh, waited tables for like eight months and then moved home for a little bit. 
And then, then I went to the school in Virginia and, and, and got my master's in theater um, called Regent. And then it was during there, we went on this trip to New York while I was there, and I just fell in love with the city. I was terrified by the city, but I fell in love with it also. And I said, I'm just going to try it out. So I moved to New York, and um, my first experience was a show called um, Shakespeare in the Parking Lot, where we did Taming of the Shrew in, the, in a parking lot in the East Village. And I didn't know anybody, and I, I, think I, I think I lived in like seven different places in the first like eight months of living there. Um, but I lived there for about seven years, and I started doing commercials. It's tough to make a uh, living as an on-screen actor in New York because yeah. there are relatively few productions that are made in New York, especially relative to Los sure. Angeles. Yeah. Um, but there is a relatively large amount of commercial production that goes yeah. on in New York. Yeah. Um, because the, there's so much of the advertising industry is in New York. Yeah, there's a huge advertising industry. But I will say, like, when I talk to a lot of kind of actors, young actors who are wanting to kind of get into the business, I'm not that I'm against L.A. I think L.A. is when I because when my generation, we didn't have web series and the Internet and all those kind of things to showcase. So I didn't at that time, I didn't see how people showcase themselves in L.A. It was really tough because nobody saw theater. Nobody went to see anything. So in New York, everybody saw theater. If you did a showcase, you could at least get some people to come see your work. So it was a much easier place, in my opinion, to kind of get started. You know, it was a much easier place to showcase your work. You, oh, you were actually in a commercial in the uh, 90s that was uh, a commercial that I... I said to my wife, oh, uh, Tony Hale was in this commercial. And she knew instantly oh, what it really? was, despite the fact that it was now 10 or 15 years ago, yeah. which was this Volkswagen commercial, uh-huh. which, which featured the song Mr. Roboto yeah. by Styx, in which you are, I would play a, play a clip from it if it wasn't yeah. completely visual. Yeah. But this was a commercial with you essentially inside of a Volkswagen Golfer or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, miming this song uh-huh. and singing along and then your friend gets inside and sings along with you. Yeah. And it was between that song or um, Amadeus. They were trying to decide between Mr. Roboto or Amadeus. I remember that. But the, interestingly enough, the guy that directed that commercial was Phil Morrison who directed Junebug. What they're selling is it's a really soundproof car. So you could go <laughs> crazy in your car and then the minute you open the door... I mean, the minute you shut the door, nobody hears you. And so it really talks about the stereo system, and it's something very attractive. And so then they put me in, who just acts like a nut in the car. But it kind of, what I was always fascinated by was, I mean, the car is great. Yeah. We're not talking like an amazing car here. We're talking about a nice car, but you really see the power of advertising. And you really see the power of something, you know, they took a creative idea, it was fun, and then they just sell like crazy. And you're like, holy cap, that really has got some power, you know, because it's a nice car, but we're not talking amazing. Right. You know? No, it's, it's, it, ain't, it ain't a Bentley. No, exactly. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tony Hale. He's a comic actor who gigged for years before landing a role on the Fox sitcom Arrested Development as Buster Bluth. He now plays Gary Walsh, the vice president's body man on the new HBO show Veep. You, when when you were still living in New York, helped create this thing called the Haven. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could. I wonder if you could tell me first of all a little bit about what what that what. I mean, it's it still exists, although from what I could sure. tell from its Twitter, it's not active at the yeah, moment. I don't think but. it's going on anymore. I think it kind of, I think it 
Because at the time, the reason why my friend Kathy Karbaski and I, we started it, was we were people of faith. Our faith was very important to us. And we were meeting a lot of people that the church... We should explain that you're Zoroastrians. <laughs> exactly. I do. I'm about to take off. Um, but we, um, we were meeting a lot of people that were from the church, and their communities were not supporting them uh, in their kind of artistic endeavors, um, unless they were doing like... Kirk Cameron movies or something, you know, something that was along, was more in the kind of Christian kind of box of what they saw as art. Um, And we just really, really kind of created, wanted to create kind of a support system for people whose faith is important to them. And it's a part of, it's a huge part of their life. And then they also have, you know, various artistic endeavors. And so we had a lot of dancers, painters, actors, obviously, and singers, and just really got together. We saw each other's work. And we really encourage each other because I think the fact of the matter is there is so much rejection in this business and there's so much, um, there's a lot of jealousy, you know, because everybody is terrified they're not going to have that gig. They're not going to make the rent. And so we really wanted a supportive group where we could encourage each other, you know, and that was, that's where it kind of came out of. I mean, this is sort of like a, it was like a Monday night Bible study type thing. Sure. But um, tell me, like, what was different about what you were doing yeah. from what I imagine when I hear Monday night Bible study exactly, type yeah. thing? And it really, I wouldn't really say it was a Bible study, even though we did talk about the Bible. I mean, I remember one part of the group was we had um, like an inspiration time where someone would kind of exhibit their work. Um, they'd get up and do a song or, or, or a poem that they wrote. But then there was also a time of uh, thankfulness, which sounds cheesy. But, you know, out here, even with people who have tons of stuff, everybody's either afraid they're going to get knocked off the top or they're not going to get to the top. I mean, it's or whatever. There's so much fear and so and anxiety. So we really wanted a time where we forced ourselves to acknowledge what we were thankful for. And it could be anything. It could be that, you know, I got an apartment or I got this great temp job or um, I, got a, I got an acting gig or something just to kind of promote a, a, a time of thankfulness. And it really just allowed us to check our attitude a little bit. And that was kind of one of the things. There's a thing about uh, about show business. My my friend uh, Julie Klausner, who's a very funny and talented uh, writer and performer in New York, I was just listening to her, her very excellent podcast, How Was Your Week? And she was describing coming back from Los Angeles and feeling relief for no longer having interactions where people looked her up and down, uh, yeah. wondered if she could help them in any way, yeah. decided that uh, she yeah. couldn't, and then cut the, cut themselves off from her. Yeah, and it's and there's real. I mean, the fact is, and we've all the business is fleeting. You know, this things come and go. It's like a machine, but it's relationships and finding people who know you and you can trust and you can have deep, thoughtful, you know, truthful relationships. That's what matters. You know, and that's what we need to invest in more. You know, because that's longevity. the The business, as we've seen, things cycle. It's not longevity. Relationships are longevity. You know. I don't. I I don't know very much about um, your beliefs, or I don't. Frankly, I don't even know what kind of church you go to. Right. right, um, right. But I I wonder if um, you know if part of uh, part of your faith is now or has ever been um, uh, witnessing or evangelizing mm-hmm. or 
you know, those various kinds of things. In other words, whether you've ever felt like it was important to share your faith with others. Um, I think, to be completely honest, I think there have been times in my life that I've felt that I, the need to to force myself to share, and then I thankfully grew from that and realized, oh, you know, it's not about having an agenda, you know, and, um, and that's just life. You kind of learn that. But, I mean, I think if it organically comes out in conversation, then fine, but it's not something that I... I can push on somebody because that's not, I don't have that power. I mean, it's no, you know, I think the huge thing with whatever faith you are is we're not listening enough. We're not listening to where people are coming from, you know, and, and we need to have more dialogue rather than agenda filled conversations. And, and granted, I'm, I'm also acknowledging the fact that I have been through, I have had those. And then thankfully I've learned and grown from them. But if it comes up to where, and organically in a conversation, then I, yeah, because it's a huge part of myself. But it's not something that I feel like I'm trying to change somebody's ideas or, or their own belief system. It strikes, that strikes me as very resonant with the craft of being an actor hmm. that, um, you know, you learn to grow from uh, being performative from from pushing yourself sure. onto mm-hmm. yeah. onto others into um you know into essentially embracing what others are are giving you yeah 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 that's very true especially with you know comedy for instance i mean it's when raised doing a lot of comedy it's all about kind of getting your bit out there you know knowing what's going to move the audience to laughter like hitting the beat and what's great about Veep, this, the show that I'm on now, is he is all about just kind of listening and letting the situation speak for itself. Because I think with comedy, and I'm sure you've heard this countless times, but if you just trust the situation that you're placed in, there's no need to push. There's no need to push your agenda. There's no need to push your beat. Because the fact is, I mean, look at Arrested Development, for, Arrested Development, for instance. Here I am playing a man who his hand has been bit off by a seal. You know, I have a relationship with Liza Minnelli. These amazing, creative, crazy situations I'm placed in, there's, and I'm sure I pushed many times, you know, out of fault, but um, there's no need to push the comedy. You know, it's like you're trusting the situations and then you're just doing it, just living it, you know, and then it's hilarious because you're there, you know. So I agree. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tony Hale. He's a comic actor who gigged for years before landing the role of a lifetime on the Fox sitcom Arrested Development as Buster Bluth. Netflix recently announced that they'll revive Arrested Development for a fourth season in 2013. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Arrested Development. I mean, I'm I'm not alone in uh, this being one of my favorite television programs. Oh, yeah. Um, Yay. Uh, I, I remember at the time that Arrested Development came uh, was was headed to Fox's fall schedule. I was an intern on a morning radio program in mm. San Francisco, mm. and uh, I couldn't have been more excited because I was such a big fan of uh, David Cross and Jeffrey Tambor. From, oh yeah, yeah. From Mr. Show and, and Larry Sanders, respectively. And um, I remember watching that pilot and thinking, "Wow!" <laughs> Just thinking, "Wow!" And one of the reasons was your brilliant performance. Oh, as that's the, so nice. Um, as the sweet, demented man-child, oh my, uh, Buster. I, you know, let, why don't we start with uh, a clip from the show? Um, this is my guest Tony Hale uh, as Buster. He's explaining to his 
uh, brother and his overbearing mother that he's got a new girlfriend. Although um, he he also admits that he does not have that he didn't have his glasses on when he saw his girlfriend, um, but he is pretty sure that he is in love. Buster's out of control. What do you mean? Another panic attack? Me? No. She's just waked up because I have a girlfriend. Oh, waiter hands him a note. Suddenly, Steve McQueen. He doesn't even know what she looks like. I know she's a brownish area with points, and I know I love her. I'm calling Dr. Miller. Okay, I don't know I love her, but I cannot tell you how liberating it is to be with someone who's not mom, who's nothing like her. Yeah, and you're just... You're just jumping right into this, huh? Oh, yes. Yes. That's what you do when life hands you a chance to be with someone special. You just grab that that brownish area by its points and you don't let go no matter what your mom says. So you actually auditioned for Arrested Development on tape from New York. It was something where you sent in an audition. And most of the cast of Arrested Development... um, were uh, were actors who were relatively advanced in their careers, at least relative to where you were. You had you had done guest shots on television, yeah, before, yeah, some, but, yeah. Um, you were basically an unknown at the time, yeah, very, very green. Um, I at the time I was doing commercials, and I was actually about to get married. Uh, we were kind of planning the wedding, and the pilot came along, the audition for the pilot, and. I saw the script and it was one of those things that having lived in New York for so many years and I actually, it took me like six or seven years to find a TV and film agent. It was very, because when you do commercials, tenderly they kind of put you in a box and don't think you can kind of do other stuff. So I'd finally found this manager that would send me out. And then months later, the arrested audition came, came through and I went in and I knew it was produced by Ron Howard and you know, I, I just, I saw the material and I was just like, oh, I mean, I'll put my best foot forward, but I'm not, my expectations are, I, mean, I got to watch that, you know, cause I can't get too, my, my hopes up too high. So I went in for the audition and, um, I was called back and I just remember being like, what the hell are you, are you kidding? I was so floored by the fact that they wanted to call me back and fly me to LA. And I was just like, what? Um, and, and so I went out to LA and, you know, that was very, really, really crazy and kind of an emotional roller coaster. And, um, but it ended up getting it and, you know, and then 10 days, shot the pilot. And then 10 days before we got married, the show got picked up. And then I was like, honey, we're moving to LA. So <laughs> surprise. And she was a makeup artist on SNL at the time. So she loved her job. So she made a huge sacrifice to move out to LA with me. Wow. I mean, that is, um, I mean, it must have been intense to kind of leap with both feet into this situation where you are, I mean, you're working with these, I mean, Jeffrey Tambor and Jessica Walter are, were as skilled and experienced as actors could possibly be. And it's not just the the tremendous talent that was I was able to work with on that show. It's also these are people who were very familiar with the business. They were had done a lot of work, and I was incredibly green. I had never been on a lot before. Um, I was just the whole time I was just kind of looking around, just like having the imposter theory. Like any time now, I'm going to be fired and I'm going to be let go. Um, so I was really, my eyes were really wide open, just kind of looking around. And all of a sudden, you know, we're going to award shows. And I mean, it was just very overwhelming. So I, I think I, I've said this before, but I think it was, probably wasn't until the third season that I began to relax a little bit. Because I, I took it really seriously. 
and just which you should, but I didn't really <laughs> re- I didn't really relax. I was just kind of overwhelmed those first two years. Well, I mean, it it, it helps, I think, that Buster's yeah, exactly. primary it, it helped, character yeah. character trait yeah, was yeah, his yeah. just crippling fear of I everything know. around him. Poor Buster. All because I, I said in, in in this New Yorker thing we had in fall that all that Buster wanted in life was safety. <laughs> That's, that was his only desire in life and anything that threatened it he would just spiral out of control on that very subject we actually have a clip from the show one of my absolute favorite buster arcs um is <laughs> when when i cuss out my mom speaking well this is where this is where um uh this is where your mom played by jessica walter enlists you in the army <laughs> um speaking of safety oh uh but you you, uh, but you don't make it on the first day. Uh, this is you. Tr- this is you trying to cover for it. Buster never went to the army. He'd gotten hooked playing the skill crane and missed his first day. Somewhat ashamed and with nowhere to go, he returned home. Buster, thank God you're back. There's no shame in being a coward. A coward? I'm not a coward. Would a coward have this? What the hell is that? These are my words, Mother. From Army. The seal is for marksmanship. And the gorilla is for sand racing. You doing well? I was just dropping these off. Now, if you'll excuse me, they're putting me in something called Hero Squad. It must have been an intense experience, not just because... I mean, the the factors of, A, you being new to this entire thing. Yeah. Uh, B, the intensity of the production. This was a show that had um, many more scenes than the average half-hour television program. And yeah. and it's, it's scenes, it's setups yeah. that make it difficult to produce a television program. Yeah. You know, I mean, pages, the amount that you have to oh, shoot man. is also difficult, but, yeah. but it's the number of times that you have to set up cameras and lights that make it hard to shoot. And so it was an intense thing it to shoot. It was a shoot. very, very dense show. Yeah, and also incredibly dense writerly. And, and by the end, I mean, when, it, when there was talk that it might potentially be you know, picked up by Showtime and, oh, yeah, yeah. and so on and so forth. It, I got the impression that uh, Mitch Hurwitz, the showrunner, was just was at that point just worn down to a nub and just mm-hmm. said, "Look, I don't even know if I can make more of these." Yeah, and I think Mitch, you know, what they Mitch just uh, I, I cannot say enough good things about that man because he is not only a very kind man, but there were times when something wasn't working on set with the scene or something and he would come down and just give us this these nuggets of comedy these gold nuggets of comedy where it was just and anything we'd come up with which just wasn't as funny as what came out of that man's mind so it was a real gift to work with him and also it was the show is so dense but which also involved their hours were nuts i mean they those writers worked their asses off to put that on the page and what I always loved was everybody was on the same page as Mitch's vision, where we would be doing a scene and, you know, there was like a, a post-it on or the refrigerator somewhere, which was a callback from like three episodes prior. And that's not really any of the writers. That's the art direction. And they, they got his humor. So everybody was on the same page. And that was very exciting to be kind of part of that kind of whirlwind. The thing that I loved about your portrayal of Buster 
was that you were you were doing that, but your character was also. I mean, almost clowning. I mean, the yeah. physicality, <laughs> the physicality of, yeah. of that character was so rich. So I mean, crazy. And I remember the first year, because um, he, he was, Mitch was saying that he kind of wanted a, like a Buster Keaton thing going. And so if you notice in kind of a, the first few episodes, they had kind of paled me out a little bit and tinted my lips kind of red. Because they wanted this kind of silent movie kind of mime thing going with like a Buster Keaton thing. So um, he really, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. There's something about that Buster Keaton quality. I mean, it's the the part of Buster Keaton. This is going to sound really horrible. But the being physically abused by his parents part of Buster Keaton, the... The pain part, the yeah, yeah, physical yeah. pain yeah. part that you can see in a Buster Keaton movie, yeah. you can feel the pain. That's right. part of what makes him so funny yeah. is that you can feel that physical pain when he's doing stuff. Totally. And he was such a container for tremendous amounts of abuse from his mother, Buster was. And I love that it would just... Both Keaton and Bruce. Yeah, yeah. And Buster Bluth, like he would, he would receive these just hurled of just, and not just kind of his mother, but just everybody was just kind of this container things, and then it would just lash out at these <laughs> random places where he could just express it all, and those were some of my favorite moments. Well, let's hear that scene in which, uh, in which you uh, lash out at your mother with a string of profanities. <laughs> now, needless to say. These profanities were uh, aired on primetime television, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, they will be appropriate for the radio unless you're uncomfortable with implied profanity. <laughs> she's the last person I ever want to need something from. Well, she likes to be needed, just as long as it doesn't cost her anything. It's like she gets off on being withholding. Whoa, Buster. Look who's got something to say. <laughs> I'm mom, and I want to shoot down everything you say so I feel good about myself. <laughs> Look who's ragging on the old lady. Hey, hey. Finally. Finally. I'm an uptight <laughs> Buster. <laughs> you old horny Well, no one's going to top that. That's funny, because I think Jason at some point said in the press that um, I recited the alphabet. And I was like, <laughs> what? I didn't recite the alphabet. Uh, I don't really remember what I recited, but I do remember, because I mean, I cuss, but I don't have like, because I remember them saying, all right, you need to just kind of go off for, you know, two minutes or so. And I was thinking, oh gosh, I don't, I got to look into my cuss vocabulary. You're know, also, you I have I a reputation keep... now as a church going man that we've just established. And <laughs> yeah, so it's, sure. it, we're going to, people are out there imagining you going like, gosh, darn it. No, no, I definitely, I definitely let loose. But I remember, ha- I remember having a talk with my friend Dusty and saying, all right, Dusty, I need you to give me like a litany of just kind of <laughs> cussing to like, let me have something to say. Cause in the moment I think I might get so nervous. Ner- I just, I don't know. I'll just keep saying over and over and over and then it won't, it won't be as exciting. <laughs> Was your friend Dusty in the Merchant Marine or something? Man, he let loose. And I was like, thank you. Great. Let's do it. (laughs) But I think I mixed that with, because in the moment I forgot a lot of it and I probably put some alphabet in there somewhere. Well, Tony, I I sure appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. My guest, Tony Hale, is one of the co-stars of the hilarious HBO comedy Veep, which airs Sunday nights on HBO. Thank you, guys.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Up next, we've got some breaking news. Fake news. It's fake news. Here's the comedy group, Casper Hauser. With your Casper Hauser News Update, I'm Richard Chlorofeniramine. Angela Snashes is at all-you-can-eat pizza traffic school. Our top story tonight, a man was seriously injured in Kings Valley as a result of a practical joke gone awry. Tom Gillett was enjoying a retirement party at Wackenbowl when he got the shock of his life. Black Widow spiders in each of the finger holes of his bowling ball. Doctors say he then showed the two classic signs of Black Widow envenomation, throwing cake and thinking he was super smart. And a respected local Buddhist monk may have used foul language in a downtown deli. No, it's not against the law, but the local Guatam Shrin Chio says that's not the image they want to send. We don't want to send an image, he says, because we're Buddhist. But if we do send an image, it shouldn't be all slow deli workers. And don't forget to set your clocks back one hour this weekend to get that extra hour of sleep. Set them back two hours if you want to get two extra hours of sleep. And some dog breeds make people happy and some, well, aren't so good for mood, says a new study. More affectionate breeds that were less difficult to care for were naturally associated with happier households. Not surprisingly, greater rates of depression and anxiety were found in people whose dogs bugged them, humped them, or ate them. And Carl Paulin, a Grass Village high school teacher, is in a hot air balloon today to raise awareness of the fact that he is single but owns his own home now that his parents are gone. He was previously in the news for making his own apple dunk tank to raise money for his LASIK procedure. And here's a scary one. Dinosaurs might still be here today if it hadn't been for a tiny twist of fate. According to Maine College professor Ted Klein, they were missing only two attributes they would have needed to escape cataclysmic asteroid impact, wheels and a gas mask. And beekeepers from around the country are meeting here in the city for their annual convention. On the agenda this year for the governing body is the question of whether or not the term beekeeper itself should be changed. Proponents say that bees, who are free to come and go as they please, are kept far less than, say, a dog or cat. Yet the term dog keeper or cat keeper are traditionally only used at Renfair. New terms that are under consideration instead are honey birther and lord of the air bears. And finally, our science question of the week from viewer Tina Billsley. Alcohol can be damaging to the liver. So what happens if a person eats liver for dinner and drinks alcohol with it? Will their dinner also be damaged? The answer, according to our expert panelists this week, I don't know, but I know chicken and cocaine is fine. With your Casper Hauser News Update, I'm Richard Chlorofeniramine. Good night. Casper Hauser's books include Weddings of the Times and Obama's Blackberry. The group will appear in San Francisco alongside our good friend Mr. John Hodgman at Cobb's Comedy Club on April 29th. You can find details on their website, Casper Hauser, K-A-S-P-E-R-H-A-U-S-E-R.com. After a break, writer-director Nick Stoller, the man behind Forgetting Sarah Marshall, among others, will talk about his unapologetic love for relationship movies. What is an example of a, a romantic comedy that, that you really liked? You just can't say When Harry Met Sally. I can't. I'm not allowed to say When Harry Met Sally. That's yeah. fair. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International.
Hello, fake radio listeners. I didn't see you over there. This is Judge John Hodgman relaxing in his chambers. You know, I've resolved the greatest moral conflicts of our time, like the potluck problem, snob versus slob, and of course, the toot dispute. Do you have a pressing issue that needs swift, decisive justice? Visit us at www.maximumfund.org slash J-J-H-O. That's J-J-H-O for Judge John Hodgman. And hear the results of each case on my weekly podcast, Judge John Hodgman. You can subscribe in iTunes or find it online at MaximumFun.org. This is the sound of a gavel. That is all. Bullseyes on Twitter. Follow us at Twitter.com slash Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Nick Stoller, is a writer, director, and a connoisseur of the relationship movie. His films as a director include Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Get Him to the Greek, and most recently, The Five-Year Engagement. Stoller co-wrote The Five-Year Engagement with its star, Jason Segel. The longtime writing partners met over 10 years ago while working on the television show Undeclared with Judd Apatow. The Five-Year Engagement is filled with sweet and funny moments between Segel and his co-star, Emily Blunt. As the film's title makes clear, the two are working their way through an unusually long betrothment. In this clip, the couple tries to have some, let's call it amorous fun, in the cold Michigan winter by jumping onto a snow pile. That snow looks nice. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Do you want to roll around with me in it and get weird? You mean like... Yeah! No one's around. Let's get into Michigan life. Okay, it sounds great. It does. There is one issue. What? It's very cold out. So what? It's going to look super small for (laughs) a second. I've seen it every single way. Not this small. Woo! (laughs) Come on, it's so nice! Do it! Whoa! What? Ah, What? My hip, my hip. Oh my god. I landed on some... Oh, it's a fire hydrant. What is a fire hydrant doing there? Poor old grandpa. I just say my hip, my yes, hip, you my did. hip. Sorry, babe. Nick Stoller, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. This is an honor. So, Nick, you you have claimed in the past to love relationship movies, mm-hmm. um, and I guess that I just don't. I don't believe you not <laughs> not based on not based on your movies mm-hmm. i mean you've made two really lovely funny relationship movies <laughs> thank you but just based on the fact that i have a hard time believing that anyone actually loves relationship movies mm-hmm. and by relationship movies you mean romantic comedies yeah <laughs> i mean at least that's that's not a lady of college age or younger mm-hmm. well i guess my inner i have an inner lady of college age or younger <laughs> that sounded weird but i uh, but yeah um no i i love them i love romantic comedies unfortunately they're a plethora of not good ones um but even even a mediocre romantic comedy can be kind of like a warm blanket <laughs> to me do you, you really know? feel that way i mean e- even in t- even in 2000 i mean i'm i'm not trying to get up in your grill but like even even in Please 2012 <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just my personal taste, you know, you know, some people enjoy kind of, you know, when you're, when you're looking for the kind of shameful entertainment, you know, that the, the kind of comforting, some people like, you know, Kung Fu movies, some people like, you know, 
B movies, some people, whatever, you know, there's different kinds of things and, and, you know, Jason Statham movies, whatever it is. And I love, uh, um, I just love romantic comedies. It's, it's even, even a not great one kind of is comforting and to me. And, you know, there's, there is something nice about, you know, headed towards a conclusion. See, you know, you know kind of what's going to happen, but even, but, but the journey is just, I don't know, to me is always comforting and fun. And it's, and I, I'm, I really am obsessed with guy girl relationships and love and stuff. And so it's always fun to see that. What is it? What is an example of a, a romantic comedy that, that you really liked that, um, you're prepared to say that you liked despite the fact that it might be embarrassing. <laughs> like you can't say when Harry met Sally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll say, what, I mean, I don't want to like, or like the seven year itch or something like that. And, and we will not say this, this is not an insult. This is a movie that you legitimately liked. liked. You just can't say the main rule is you can't say when Harry met Sally. I can't, I'm not allowed to say when Harry met Sally. That's yeah. fair. Um, so this is one that I legitimately liked. Yeah. Because I do not want to, I don't like to slam things. Right. No, you're not slamming anybody. <laughs> um, I legitimately liked and was surprised by the plot turns of Valentine's Day. I was, when I saw that film, I, you know, I was kind of like, I guess I should watch this because this is my genre. This is the most successful romantic comedy of, of recent times. And sat down and I was like, oh my God, Julia Roberts is actually trying to see her son or her daughter. <laughs> like, it was like a big reveal to me. Um, and uh, the reveal that Bradley Cooper, I'm, I'm not like blowing everyone's, you know. But I thought it was an interesting... <laughs> now I'm not going to see Valentine's I Day. I know, I know. It's why like, bother? Why, exactly. Um, but it was, there were a bunch of kind of like, I hadn't seen a romantic comedy where there were plot twists really in that way. You know, there's, you know, uh, that totally worked. And, and that, was, that was one where there were literally like reveals uh, in the plot that were that both made sense and were satisfying emotionally and uh yeah so and so is it the is it the aspect of the romantic comedy that you know where you're going but you're surprised at how you get there that is exciting to you yeah i mean i think that and this is true i think of any movie that the that, that or any story for that matter whether it would no matter excuse me no matter the genre that i think it should be surprising but inevitable uh, that that you should feel at the end of a movie because you, you you don't want to do something where like where there's a there's a plot twist that's not that's not uh, that's just random because that that feels fake but you do want you don't want it to be so by the numbers that like you know exactly what's going to happen and so I think like the great you know romantic comedies uh, take you on a journey that's unexpected and then often you end up at a place that's that that is a little expected but ideally the journey isn't. A lot of romantic comedies have this problem where the the boy is some kind of madman mm-hmm. and the girl <laughs> is a madman. Right? I want to I mean, see that romantic that was, comedy. I mean, I think that was what was... Like a literal madman like Charles what, Manson? Yeah, like insane. Mm-hmm. Like that was sort of what was satirized in like punch drunk love is that the is that the protagonist the male protagonist of a romantic comedy is often in the classic romantic comedy the like running to the airport romantic comedy Mm -hmm. is behaving often in a way that is literally insane (laughs) and that the and, and you know on the other hand the female protagonist of a romantic comedy is often only just gets to be sort of a hopeless dope Mm-hmm. Like she's either like her to her journey often is like through is often through kind of it starts like, you know, she she gets to learn not to be a hateful shrew or something like that. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, I mean, I don't know. It seems to me that, like, yeah, the, to me, the types that are often in romantic comedies is the, the guy is like the guy is afraid of commitment, and the girl's heart has recently been broken, and you know, and is l- licking her wounds. Like that seems to me the to be the basic kind of. And then they each, and then the the bad romantic comedy has the thing that I really abhor more than anything, which is the uh, the 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 miscommunication or the mistaken like. I don't know what you'd call it. The you know the the miscommunication is the best way to the best way to put it. Where someone thinks something happened that didn't actually happen, and rather than talking about it like two adults, you know, like for example, the 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 guy uh, hugs his hugs his ex girlfriend uh, in a platonic way, and the new girl sees that and like freaks out, and rather than talking about it like two adults, it like causes the third act problem. It's and like the, a it's like a farce, like a yeah, like, like a boring, a a boring, non funny farce. Yeah, <laughs> is the is the is the way most you know is the way most uh, bad romantic comedies are structured, and, and I don't like it because it's not real, it's not true, it's not true to love, it's not you know uh, two adults. If you have a strong relationship, will say like actually I was just hugging my ex girlfriend because her cat died or whatever, and then and then and then and then the new the new girlfriend or the the love interest would be like, oh okay, sorry about sorry I got mad at you briefly, and then it would be over. But that's not what happens. She like gets on a plane to take her job in Seattle as an architect, and he has to run to the plane to get her. So, <laughs> and that's the that's the kind of structure that's not as interesting to me. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Nicholas Stoller, is uh, a writer and director. His latest film is. The five-year engagement. We're at his home office in Los Angeles. A lot of the movies that uh, Judd Apatow has produced, the oeuvre, if you will, Mm -hmm. have been about um, mostly about men becoming Mm grown-ups. But I think that your films have your films have had a very different take on that theme. And that's also a very different way of looking at romance. Um, and I wonder if we if we start with forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is a movie that I just I just loved that movie. Oh, thank you. Um, if you could talk a little bit about what your what your goals were mm-hmm. in terms of how you could write a movie that was romantic, that would be a love story. Well, J- well, Jason wrote the script. So uh, Jason Siegel wrote the script, and um, and then I came in kind of you know later and kind of helped him kind of rewrite stuff. And um, in that story, I mean, we with with all with all three movies, and I would say Judd does this with all of his movies, but with my, with the three movies I've directed, we start. It's they're drama- They're essentially dramas. We structure them like dramas. There's nothing. There's nothing funny about the stories that we're telling. You know, Sarah Marshall is like. You know, if we if it, it's about a guy whose heart is just just torn out of his chest and like and goes lick his wounds and then the, he's presented with the ultimate nightmare. Um, uh, Greek is basically a drug bender. You know, it's like uh, I watched Sid and Nancy as reference for that. And uh, and Five Year Engagement is about the horrible kind of inertia that can kind of destroy a relationship. And so we start with these very dramatic structures because if you you can't start from the comedy and then we try to build it towards something that's funny. So we were most concerned on Sarah Marshall. That when Jason plays the song in the bar, he plays the Dracula song in the bar. We, I was most, I knew that Jason would be funny. I'd seen him play that song a bunch of times. I was most concerned that Mila Kunis l- smile at him and laugh at him and look at him with love. 
in that moment and fall in love with him in that moment. And that's the only reason the movie works. Like without that, without that moment where she's looking at him and falling in love with him, the movie, the movie would be funny, but it would be kind of, not to make a pun, but forgettable, you know? And if I see Van Helsing, I swear to the Lord I will slay him. Ha 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 ha, he'd take him from me, but I swear I won't let it be so. Ha 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 ha, blood will run down his face when he is decapitated. Ah, his head on my mantle is how I will let this world go. How much I love you. When you're writing with Jason Siegel, I imagine, and especially when you're writing a project that Jason Siegel is going to be on screen for, mm-hmm. um, you're thinking about Jason Siegel's special quality on mm-hmm. screen. And I wonder if you could describe, you, you said that he has a special presence on screen, but I wonder if you could describe from a director's standpoint, you know, a director who's friends with him, but, <laughs> uh, 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 from a director's standpoint, what it is about Jason Siegel as a performer that's special. He has sad eyes. <laughs> so he could be doing the like funniest, craziest stuff on screen, but you look into his eyes and you're like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I think it's literally that. And he's so sweet. He has such a warm screen presence that he can do crazy, not great things. And you still have sympathy for him. Um, you know, in uh, like in Sarah Marshall, he like, Mila Kunis, who's essentially the perfect girl, falls in love with him, and then he goes and hooks up with Kristen Bell, and you don't want to kill him. Like, you you understand. He's just very sympathetic. Listen, I'm here because I don't want to lie to you, okay? Some stuff happened. I'm, I'm really, really sorry that it did, but I'm also really glad that it did because I'm just, I'm able to see so clearly now that Sarah and I are not right for each other. What stuff? I went up to make sure that she was okay, and it got weird. But now uh, everything is fine, and I need you to understand that I meant everything that I said to you this morning. What exactly happened, Peter? We fooled around a little bit. He can be in one that's in the same moment, hilarious and heartbreaking, um, and uh, that that is my my goal when I'm tr- directing, you know, you know, making movies, is to try to capture that feeling. And he's he's real quite adept at it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer-director Nick Stoller. His new movie is The Five-Year Engagement, which stars Jason Segel and Emily Blunt as a couple who are locked in an unusually long betrothment. In this clip, the couple's families debate the religious aspects of the upcoming wedding. The men will wear yarmulkes. And in that case, all eligible Christians will be served communion. Communion? What, we're going to have communion at my son's wedding? Um, it's our wedding, Pete, and... I mean, seeing as everyone's going to be wearing yarmulkes... Well, actually, only the men will be wearing yarmulkes, so... Well, I've never heard you say the word yarmulke till today. I... Excuse me, I say yarmulke all the time. You don't. You like, hey, where's my yarmulke, babe? Babe, Have you, you seen my yarmulke? You don't have a yarmulke. I have a whole... It's in my... You... Jewish drawer. So there are these uh there are these moments that happen in uh a comedy these days that are the like uh sort of right home to mom and dad moments 
like the moments where you leave the theater and then you call and tell your friend you won't believe what I just saw in the theater in the movie <laughs> yeah. moments. And I was really, I was really interested in how you played them. And I, I don't, I'm hesitant to reveal what they are because, um, you know, I, I think you're not supposed to, uh, in the five-year engagement, but I'll give an example. I think there's a, there's a scene in Bridesmaids, uh, which at this point, I think everyone in the world has seen and God bless them. It was hilarious. Um, where everyone goes to the bathroom in the street wearing wedding dresses. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> like, that is the kind of scene that I'm, I'm talking about. And uh, there are a few scenes like that in the movie. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, I, what, I was, what I was interested in is there, there are these, there's these scenes of sort of intense, like brutality, like physical intensity. <laughs> but you, you play them sort of softer and more sweetly than you could have. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, there's no boy mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. I mean, there's guy, there's, there's the, there's the scene where, uh, 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 Siegel is flail, flailing around. There is, uh, in I'm a, to, I'm trying to think what in the, seems- he's having an emotional meltdown. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, that is, oh, I'm sorry for our audience, but that is all that I can say about it <laughs> without ruining it for you. Um, there is a, a scene where Emily Blunt gets badly hurt. <laughs> um, again, that's all I can reveal without ruining the moment for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of those scenes are played almost as, as sad as much as they are, like, as I said, as much as they are boy oying Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if it's too late to put a boy on yoing in the, because I could, you, know, you should call, punch it. you know what, you know who I would call the sound effects guy from American Pickers on the history channel. <laughs> yeah. Cause they are always, they'll drop a boy on on anything. I should, I should get it. I, I, I think that boy on costs, costs a lot though oh, <laughs> to license yeah. it. Yeah, sure. Um, well in terms of like, yeah, in terms of any set piece, you know, and this is something I learned on Sarah Marshall actually, cause we shot a bunch of set pieces that didn't end up in the film they have to be justified by the characters and the story. They have to come out of the story. And if they don't, the audience might, might laugh at it. They probably won't. Um, but you'll end up cutting it because it will feel gratuitous. And, you know, so like in Bridesmaids, that's a moment where Kristen Wiig has recommended this restaurant and has stuck her neck out and then gets slammed for it. And so it's this, it's the, it's a, it's the starting, it's, it's the beginning of her friendship with her friend dissolving with my, her friendship with. So that's why that sequence, that sequence is hilarious, but it's, it works because it's the most amazing moment to me is when she's Kristen Wiig's fronting and is pretending, you know, that she's fine because because she won't admit that she's at fault for this. Um, and so it's the same thing in Five Year, you know, uh, uh, where you know we have these kind of uh, physical set pieces or you know emotional breakdowns that result in physical set pieces, and there's always there's always kind of an emotional underpinning to them. I would say like a good like in Sarah Marshall, for example, um, the Jason is naked in the beginning of that movie it's really funny but it's also works because he's vulnerable he couldn't be at his more at a more vulnerable place and you can't so you can't the most vulnerable you can be is naked and so that's why it works that's why it doesn't feel gratuitous hopefully um it's how i justify it to myself to the world <laughs> <laughs> but you know but that's you know i think that that's uh that's true and then in you know in greek the crazy vegas fight you know that's like another like it's a funny sequence but it's supposed to be the moment where everything has really fallen apart and and it's just gone too crazy and uh so if we had had that you know if that if that had been part of the story it wouldn't 
really have landed. It wouldn't have been a funny sequence, but it wouldn't have landed. Um, and same thing in five year in terms of their breakdowns. Do you do this thing where you, uh, run a, a bunch of test screenings to figure out which things people like and don't like? Oh yeah. We do lots of test screenings and we, we, it's at this point, it's really for jokes. We discover, you know, we discover like certain jokes we had, a, for example, we had a set piece actually in five year that we cut out. I was trying to figure out some way to get a set piece into Winton's Winton's house, into Reese Fon's house. There's a sequence where Jason, uh, Emily works for this professor played, played by Reese Fon's. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, Jason is meets all of the grad students and he's really feels, he really feels all the grad students are Emily's, uh, coworkers and he feels completely out of place. And so I thought, I was I kind of stretched too far to try to have the set piece happen where he ends up getting he ends up getting locked out on the balcony um of Reese Fon's house and he ends up he can't get back in and then he tries and then you cut to inside and Emily and Mindy Kaling are talking to each other and you see Jason just like fall outside like behind in the window and it's <laughs> it's a pretty funny sequence. It had no place in the movie. It just was totally bonkers like Buster Keaton suddenly we're in a Buster Keaton movie, you know. Um and uh and because it wasn't emotionally called for, you know, there wasn't, he, we just needed to show him look a little awkward and that's really all we needed to, to tell that story. Um, whereas there are other physical set pieces there's, you know, in the film, which are really called for by the, by what's dramatically happening in the film. And I, I and that ended up being successful because of that. Do, how do you, like, what do you learn from, what do you learn from those screenings? Because I think this is like a really, this is a really interesting thing that that you know exist that has existed for a long time but that Judd Apatow and cohorts has made has been the first person to take this and uh, and essentially apply it for good yeah. <laughs> rather than for ill yeah I mean the great thing about comedy is is you know if it's funny or not you know by an audience's reaction uh, I'd be terrified to direct like a straight drama or something because I would have no idea if you don't hear the audience laugh. There's like no way to know um, to me. Um, so we record the laughs. Uh, we set up uh, we set up um, audio, you know, recording devices in the theater and um, we record the laughs and we sync, we sync this laugh track to the film. Um, and then we watch the laughs because everyone remembers the joke they like getting a laugh whether it got a laugh or not. So, and, and I'll, I'll have debates with my editor or I would have in the past have had debates with my editor or with Judd or with Rodney Roth when he produces the movies and be like, no, that laugh totally, that joke totally killed because it's a, maybe it's a joke I thought of or maybe it's something I just think is funny. And then you play the laugh track and it keeps you honest because you know what la- what jokes landed um, and what jokes didn't, you know. I want to ask you a little bit about Emily Blunt's character in the five-year engagement. Um, something that I really liked about her character was that it's rare that you get to see a female character, a female lead in, in a romantic film get to do, you know, you let her do, do lousy stuff that's somewhat justified, but not perfectly justified. Like she's not forced into it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, we try to, they start from this kind of naive place of everything will be fine. And then when it isn't, they don't know how to deal with it. And both characters start to spin out. And so as Jason gets more and more, as he's having more and more of a meltdown, isn't communicating with her, you know, we had a lot of conversations about the emotional, how the emotional stuff's working. He is pushing her away. 
you know, uh, and so that starts to, she starts to feel distant from him. Uh, and, uh, and so she starts to kind of, she, she starts to withdraw and, uh, and because they're not good at communicating, that's like one of the themes in the movie. And so then she does something stupid and then you, and Emily's really good at playing the guilt. As soon as she does something stupid in the movie, she looks so guilty. And that's really all, you know, she says, she says something in the movie that's like, you know, she says to Jason at a certain point, maybe it's okay for me to be selfish. It's a, it's a terrible thing to say to your, you know, like to your husband, but the way she says it, she looks so guilty and she looks so like she know you can see in her eyes. She knows she shouldn't be saying it. And so, so the audience is with her. Um, you know, so yeah. Well, Nick, I sure, I sure appreciate you taking the time to join me on Bullseye. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me. This is awesome. Nick Stoller is the writer and director of The Five-Year Engagement. It opens this week. Every week on Bullseye, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. You know, I hate to admit that I work in the fashion industry, even to myself, If you don't know, I own and edit a blog about menswear, and the bigger it's gotten, the closer I've gotten to the business side of fashion, and the closer I've gotten to the business of fashion, the less I've liked it. Whatever your stereotypes about the fashion industry are, they're mostly true. But there are exceptions, like Bill Cunningham. For decades, Cunningham has edited On the Street, the singularly democratic fashion spread in the New York Times. It features regular people alongside models and designers, and it comes to life in the audio slideshows Cunningham records for the Times website. Hello, uh, this is Bill Cunningham from the streets of New York City. And the fashion I knew that Cunningham was the rare fashion journalist who cared as much about 16-year-olds in Harlem as he did about models smoking outside of fashion shows. But I didn't know much else about him until I saw the wonderful documentary, Bill Cunningham, New York. Cunningham's in his 80s, and he still bikes around the boroughs wearing a janitor's work coat and shooting on a camera so beat up you wonder how it even takes pictures. He goes to every European fashion week, sitting in the front row in his anti-fashion clothes, shooting madly and documenting the art that he loves. Look at Veronica. Hello, child. The diamonds have gotten bigger. (laughs) He was originally a milliner making couture hats, but became a photographer by happenstance in the 60s and 70s. In the 80s, he refused payment for his work from the most prestigious fashion magazines in the world so he could have more editorial pages and full control of how what he shot was presented. If you don't take their money, he tells the filmmakers in Bill Cunningham, New York, they can't tell you what to do. His home is basically a hot plate, a piece of plywood with a mattress on it, and dozens and dozens of filing cabinets overflowing with photographs. The plywood mattress bed is suspended over a couple of the filing cabinets. He's basically a fashion monk. Oh, boy, someday it's all going to fall down on me. I know. I don't even want to think about that. (laughs) If I disappear under a a bunch of books, you'll know what? They're all fashion books. Imagine me having... Cunningham is famously inscrutable. He refused to allow interviews of any kind for years. Even those closest to him know very little about him, and... So it's shocking to hear the filmmakers ask him gently if he's gay. So I'm going to ask you two very personal questions you may or may not want to answer. It's completely up to you. But have you ever had a romantic relationship in your entire life? (laughs) 
Now, do you want to know if I'm gay? Yes. <laughs> Isn't that a riot? Well, that's probably why the family wanted to keep me out of the fashion world. If they wouldn't speak of such a thing. Um, no, I haven't. Never in your entire life? No. It never occurred to me. I'm, I guess I just was interested in clothes. That's uh, the obsession. It's, it's probably a little peculiar. He never quite answers the question, but he does allow that he's never had a true romantic relationship, which is heartbreaking. But Bill Cunningham's romance is with the clothes. I'm not interested in the celebrities with their free dresses. It's the clothes, not the celebrity and not the spectacle. It's as true today as it ever was. He who seeks beauty will find it. That's my outshot. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Julia Smith is our producer, Nick White, our editor. Our interns are Joe Molinelli and Justin Morissette. Our theme music, Huddle Formation, by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. You can email me if you have thoughts about the show, jesse at MaximumFun.org. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.